0: Hello and welcome to the Vera Magazine podcast. I'm Johnny Ensell, back with some more tip top travel tidbits for our September edition. This month we'll be doing our best blue steel as we find out what's so hot right now in London ahead of Fashion Week and finding out when Fidget Spinner the movie could be hitting our screens. And there'll even be a little bit of this.
1: You're a cheeky chappy and a diamond geezer.
0: Oh, yeah, that's great, guy. Great dialogue, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Bish bosh bash done.
0: We start the podcast with Red Hot, and Red Hot is where we explore those trends and happenings around the world that are getting our juices flowing, for which we're joined by Vera editor Jessica Poupas, who tells us about all the cool things that have come onto her radar. Hello Jess. Hey. How's your radar
2: feeling? <laughs> it's, um, I don't know, what do radars do? Beep. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, beeping forcefully. <laughs> okay,
0: well, let's let's uh, respond to that signal then. Uh, what what <laughs> would you like to highlight from the worlds of travel and culture?
2: Yeah, well, first up, um, John Waters, Pope of Trash. Mm. Uh, are you familiar with John Waters' oeuvre?
0: Yeah, I know his oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's he's a, a kind of camp film American film director yeah known for films that uh, you know may at one time have been considered a bit trashy but are maybe being reappraised
2: yes exactly so he used to work on the underground and was a big kind of trailblazer in you know the b-movie genre
0: yeah so what are his films
2: well he's got Hairspray Pink Flamingos Crybaby and he's he's known for his collaborations with Divine who's a very famous drag queen
0: yeah. So what is John Waters' Pope of Trash?
2: It's an exhibition at the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures in L.A., which is a museum owned and run by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts uh, and Sciences. Uh, you are probably familiar with them.
0: Yeah. So it's it's basically the Oscars Museum, right?
2: It's the Oscars, guys. Yeah. Uh, they run this museum. I was in L.A. recently and I went there. Uh, it's a cool space. It's got a great gift shop so I can recommend that. (laughs) Good. Uh, (laughs) It opened in 2021, so it's fairly new, the museum. And they run exhibitions exploring the particular influence and works from particular directors. Uh, And John Waters is getting that treatment September 17th, the first major exhibition of him, really.
0: And why is it that he is finally being acknowledged by the establishment in this way?
2: Uh, Well, he's set to soon get his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which I guess, which I guess helps. Mm. I think, you know, like, like we were saying, he was working on the underground primarily in the early part of his career. But in the last decade, there's been a kind of reappraisal of his work. And, you know, just, there's been an acknowledgement of how widely influential he's been. And I think now we love, we love a bit of trash. Mm. High and low culture have collapsed and we love camp. Obviously, camp was the theme at the Met Gala a few years ago. Right, yeah, yeah. And he does camp really well.
0: Yeah, okay, great. So in, in this kind of era of inclusivity, works that would maybe previously be seen as lower in, in the kind of artistic hierarchy are now being treated as higher. Well, that sounds great.
2: Uh, nope, yeah, can't wait for it.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, let's move on. What what else is red hot right now?
2: We've got product movies.
0: Hmm. Okay, I think I know what this is.
2: Yeah. What do you think it is?
0: So I think it's like movies about stuff you can buy, or board games, or just mm-hmm. like just like stuff. You know. Yeah. Stuff. Stuff, stuff as movie.
2: <laughs> it's yeah. It's movies about stuff. Mm. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's essentially it. This year, there's been a real onslaught of movies of this kind. So movies that center around commodities or products really, Mm. and tell the story of either the product itself or the people behind the product. Uh, So we've got Air, directed by Ben Affleck, which is about the invention of Air Jordans and the the famous partnership uh, between Michael Jordan and Nike. Flamin' Hot, which is directed by Eva Longoria, about the invention of uh, Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Mm. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Yeah, I, yeah, we were all interested in that. Tetris, starring Taryn Egerton, which is about the game Tetris, and then BlackBerry, which is available to watch on board now, which is about the rise and demise of the BlackBerry, the first smartphone, directed by Canadian filmmaker Matthew Johnson, which is apparently very good, very riveting.
0: Mm. Okay, yeah. And, and then there's, there's obviously like Barbie as well. Isn't and
2: the there? Barbie movie. Yeah. I'm going to go see it on Friday. I'm very excited.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, why do you think we care so much about stuff? Is this just uh, the inevitable cinematic conclusion of late-stage capitalism?
2: <laughs> yeah, in a way. I mean, I think we, or some people at least, idolize products. We put products on a pedestal. But whether we want it or not, it's happening, I think, simply because Hollywood is obsessed with IP, Mm. intellectual property. And then, you know, you get to a certain point where you've remade and remade all of the supermans and the (laughs) what's-its. And then you just kind of need to look around and be like, what can we make a movie about? So
0: you're basically imagining Hollywood executives sat in a room being like, film about chairs film about desk <laughs> film about plant film about iPhone.
2: desk the movie <laughs> yeah yeah uh,
0: i can yeah. i can see that yeah i mean where, <laughs> what what's the conclusion of this trend what's the movie that we're going to get in 2030
2: fidget spinners the movie
0: fidget spinners the movie yeah uh okay what what are you um also touting jess
2: uh sours sexy sours
0: mm There is a drink in the UK called Sours with a Z, like sours. Uh, Oh,
2: yeah. Is that the kind of thing you drink when, not to condone it, but like uh, (laughs) when you're uh, not quite of age and don't know how? (laughs) (laughs) And don't realize that booze isn't meant to taste like pure sugar.
0: Yeah. But I'm guessing this is not the sort of sours that you're talking about.
2: No, it's actually a classic style of cocktail. Mm. So it's liquor, citrus and sweetener. I'm sure you've had many in your time as have I I've
0: had I've had a I've had a whiskey sour too yeah
2: sure yeah um it's a classic formula um and I think now bartenders and bars are revisiting classic formulas you know we talked about the martini and how that's getting a makeover Um, and now it's the turn of the sours Mm.
0: so what sort of sours can you experience
2: well, at Holiday in Austin, which is a new bar, they've got the Heart Like a Wheel, which has bourbon, grapefruit liquor, uh, almond or and cardamom bitters. Sounds good yeah and then you have the uh Wolfie bam sour at lioness in london which is a very creative uh cocktail bar they're known for their kind of like wacky ingredients and it's got mezcal uh tree caramel which is apparently a tea made from tree bark mm-hmm. rowan berry antler which is precisely what it sounds like dissolved antler 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 yeah mm. apparently uh it's antler that's that comes from the population culling of deer in Scotland.
0: Well, I only eat sustainable antler.
2: Of course. Johnny Walker bugs, which is apparently cricket, mm. um, and a splash of talisker.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> such a made-up drink.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, okay. and, yet, and yet
2: it exists. Yeah. It,
0: yeah, it is. So if you like your sour... With bugs and antler, <laughs> head down to Lioness. I mean, I, I love Lioness. It's a really excellent bar in London. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it sounds wacky, but I'm so sure it's life-changingly tasty.
2: <laughs> yes. All oh, right,
0: let's move on. Is there a, a food recommendation?
2: Uh, there is. Anomaly in San Francisco.
0: Anomaly. Okay. Uh, and this is a restaurant?
2: It is, yeah. Um, it comes from a chef named Mike Lanham, who... A mere five years ago, was a professional cyclist mm. um, and he got into an accident, I believe, um, and then had to kind of hang up his Lycra. And then he was just like, I'm going to become a chef. Um, and he's been absolutely smashing it out of the park ever since.
0: Yeah. So he's got that kind of cyclist drive mm. and he's channeled that into... Into his restaurant.
2: Yes, he's kind of like maniacally channeled it into his pop ups mm. that he's been doing around San Francisco. He calls his cooking style postmodern American. And Anomaly started out as a pop up and now it has a uh, permanent location in Lower Pacific Heights. And here you can sample his 11 course tasting menu. It's playful, it's creative, uh, and yeah, it's postmodern in that it kind of references culture um, and deconstructs and the the dishes are very kind of like deconstructive so he's got an emoji inspired egg bite so it looks like the emoji of the egg Mm. nettle soup that's smoking with dry ice
0: like a kind of 80s movie
2: yeah exactly yeah uh and you can choose to pair the dishes with either wine cider or sake so yeah it's just a bit of fun
0: yeah. Okay. Cool. So, cyclist dude turns out to be brilliant chef. Mm-hmm. Great. Good story. Uh, right then, what about a hotel?
2: Yeah, we've got Ulysses uh, in Baltimore.
0: Okay, Ulysses in Baltimore. Um, this is mm-hmm. why is this a trending hotel?
2: Well, I think people say that Baltimore is a bit of an underrated city, but yeah, it's an hour away from Washington, uh, and it's apparently got a cool vibe and. This hotel is in the Mount Vernon neighborhood, which people say is the cultural center of the city. And I think that this hotel is really putting the city on the map because it is purported to be one of the best hotels that have opened in the last year in, mm. in the U.S., It's housed in a building, a turn-of-the-century building uh, that was once uh, a quite swanky block of apartments, and it's gone through many iterations over the years, but now it is this hotel which is designed by Ash, who are quite a cool design company, design firm, who have done some other quite famous hotels in the U.S., like The Siren in Detroit um, and Peter and Paul in New Orleans. Uh, And they've got quite a distinct design style, which is very maximalist, but cozy.
0: Yeah, okay. So bright colors, kind of garish patterns, that sort of thing.
2: Mm, And it's actually, according to the hotel itself, the design is inspired by John Waters, who we were previously discussing. Mm. Um, And it's about kind of, it's really about like refined trash. So, you know, they've got this Cocktail bar in the hotel called Blooms, which has heavy beaded curtains and mirrored walls and ceilings and candy bowls full of M and M's. Uh, John Waters <laughs> himself would have loved it.
0: Yeah, excellent. Okay, so yeah, it's a lot of sort of low meets high. What did you, what did you call it? The collapse, the collapse of-, of
2: high and low culture.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 you can stay at the ground zero of this collapse at the, Uly- <laughs> at the ulysses hotel in baltimore um okay so uh, let's finish off then jess what's the last thing you're mentioning
2: celeb hydration
0: Well, is this just celebs uh selling water
2: it's celeb selling water
0: okay yeah 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 i mean <laughs> i've seen a bit of this but who is uh peddling water these days
2: henry cavill uh, Superman himself. Yeah, he is the face of Number One Botanicals, which is an herbal-infused water brand, said to boost metabolism and cognitive function.
0: Mm, so super water. Super water super from water. Superman. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Um, P. Diddy and Mark Wahlberg joined forces—an epic pairing—to uh, co-found Aqua Hydrate, which <laughs> is, <laughs> which is a hilariously named water brand that apparently has 72 supplemental trace minerals in it and is extra hyper filtered
0: right okay so it's both sort of got more stuff in it and less stuff in it (laughs) simultaneously
2: somehow it does it all (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay and then jaden smith one of my faves uh he is behind just water Uh, which is a sustainably packaged water brand uh, that he was inspired to found after he was uh, taking a surf lesson and he saw a single plastic water bottle bobbing in the Pacific Ocean and this made him sad. And so he founded Just Water.
0: Hmm. I often found companies uh, when I'm feeling a bit sad.
2: (laughs) He's an emo boy and that's why we love him
0: okay so i mean at the pinnacle of innovation celebrities are selling us the most essential thing that we need for life functions
2: (laughs) (laughs) they are gatekeeping water
0: yeah okay well you know fair play to them and i you know i i'm only going to drink henry cavill's water from
2: now on
0: (laughs) does it come does any of it come out of henry cavill because i feel like that might make it more valuable (laughs)
2: um i don't think sag would allow it
0: <laughs> yeah you got to protect your fluids if you're in uh, the screen actors guild uh, all right well let's uh, let's allow this conversation to sluice away and uh, as we bid goodbye to red hot this episode thank you jess for those picks.
2: i'm sluicing as we speak
0: <laughs> yeah keep it sluice thanks jess <laughs>
2: okay bye
0: London is one of the world's most fashionable cities, especially in September, when London Fashion Week takes place. So where do the British capital's most glamorous people hang out? Well, here to tell us is freelance writer and fashion set insider Grace Cook. Let's see if we can get Grace on the phone. Hello? Hi Grace, it's Johnny.
3: Hi, Johnny. How are you?
0: I'm very well. Uh, so you're going to tell us a little bit about London in a fashionable sense.
3: I am. London in September is when all of the fashion industry descend mm. on the capital to kind of see what the designers are putting out on the runway. There's a lot of energy in the city around this time from, you know, this... the on-schedule catwalk events to new restaurants opening and there always seems to be like hubs where people tend to congregate for the the dinners and the drinks after the shows are finished to kind of decompress.
0: And where are you now are you somewhere cool?
3: I am so I'm actually at Cafe Cecilia it's a restaurant that opened I think possibly a year ago by Max Rocha so he's an Irish chef but he's actually the brother to Simone Rocha the designer so as you can imagine it attracts lots of trendy in the know people and it was very hard to get a table here when it first opened for quite a long time.
0: Oh, excellent. And what's the secret to getting a table?
3: Actually to go at breakfast time because they don't take reservations at breakfast. Lunch and dinner you have to reserve maybe a few weeks in advance, but at breakfast time it's kind of a really nice setup where they have tables outside which is lovely in the September sunshine and it's really quiet around that part of East London at that time in the morning which come 11am we'll pick up and you'll get the crowds coming from broadway market the crowds coming from the canal there's lots of runners and cyclists Um, but if you kind of tend to turn up at 9am you'll be guaranteed to get a table outside and they do lovely things for breakfast like they've got kippers on the menu there's lots of black pudding eggs and soldiers asparagus it's very sort of simple honest irish food
0: Excellent. So you're in East London and what's cool about East London and is that one of these hubs that you talked about for fashion?
3: Definitely. Lots of designers actually have their studios here. I think back in the day, East London became a bit of a scene just because the rents were cheaper than anywhere Mm. else in London, which tends to happen with any city where, you know, designers with low budgets kind of go where they can get the most space for their money, like the most bang for your buck. And it's now where a lot of interesting and creative ideas are generated, whether that's from fashion to food to drinks, there's always something interesting open in in and around East London. And this bit where Cafe Cecilia is, is a real pocket of that. It's a real example of that because you've got just down the road, there's a new coffee place opened called Forno, where they do amazing Italian pastries. You're right on the canal, which goes right the way to King's Cross. But it's also just around the corner from Broadway Market, where there's lots of independent shops and cafes and then at the weekends there's also food markets selling everything from sushi wraps to coconuts to you know you can basically get anything there as well as lots of arts and crafts businesses as well have a store Mm. you get a real sense of uh, the vibe of london that you kind of tend not to get if you stick to the city center
0: yes yeah so if you're a visionary designer You've got your studio space where you're making your beautiful clothes, yeah. and you can go out and get your artisanal coffee and your perfectly uh, soft pastry, exactly. and maybe maybe draw some inspiration from your friends' boutiques. This is the lifestyle we're describing here,
3: definitely. And also, you get inspiration from just seeing what people are wearing on the streets. You mm. know, there's a lot of students in East London as well, and um, it's a real hope for you know the arts colleges. And so you can kind of go out and get inspiration from what people are wearing, the way that they've put outfits together that I think you tend not to see as much in other parts of London. Yeah. There's a lot of experimentation that goes on there, which kind of helps to feed that creative energy that East London is known for.
0: So what about Fashion Week itself? If you were going to go to Fashion Week events, where would you be in the city?
3: They tend to be around central London. Some designers will... Or we in specific places. So Erdem, for example, will often show in the National Portrait Gallery, which is an incredible way for fashion insiders attending the shows to experience venues like that in a way that they won't ever have done before. In the sense that, you know, you're kind of sitting on rows next to other fashion editors surrounded by all of this incredibly historic artworks watching a catwalk show and there's no queues to see any of the artworks because it's closed off for a private event. Mm. And then there's places like 180 The Strand that tends to host quite a lot of the emerging designers. And then, you know, Simone Rocha has been everywhere from Guildhall to churches in Southwark, which is in Borough Market. So you get a real mix of there being kind of mainstay event spaces and then designers that will Try to utilise the show space to kind of communicate something about the mood of the season for them.
0: So London is the canvas, and they are the artists.
3: Essentially, yes.
0: Mm, I feel, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I could fit in with this scene <laughs> with my <laughs> with my loquacious nonsense. I mean, what what about for somebody like me who is, um, let's be honest, somewhat an interloper in the fashion world? Is it possible to kind of get close to the action? How would I go about enjoying it?
3: Um, There's lots of off-schedule events, actually. The British Fashion Council has a program where people who are not in the industry and not actually on the invite list for shows can have a look and see what else is going on. Um, Also, a lot of London-based brands will do their own events in and around Fashion Week, whether that's some sort of activation in-store. There's lots of drinks events. Lots of galleries have after-hours drinks and things like that. So even if you're not necessarily going to be going and sitting on the front row, there's there's a way to tap into that energy and that air of exclusivity that Mm. is that doesn't involve actually going to a show
0: and let's say you were kind of top of the tree and you were trying to get the most exclusive reservation in london where would you be going to what are the restaurants or the nightclubs where these people hang out
3: the Standard always does a very good party. That's the
0: Standard Hotel. The
3: Standard Hotel, yeah. There's, a, there's The rooftop bar there is incredible. And actually, it's one of the only bars in London where you get above the city. It's a big thing in New York, obviously, where you, you, know, you have that kind of penthouse view, but they don't exist that much in London. But the Standard has an incredible one. And you're right opposite King's Cross, and you can really have like a 360-degree view of London, which is kind of unrivaled, actually, as far as having that late night experience goes. Mm. In terms of reservations, I'd say Cafe Cecilia mm-hmm. is one where people should try and, you know, set some sort of calendar alert to try and get a table there. There's also Sessions Arts Club, which is possibly one of the most beautiful venues in the city. And where's that? So that's in Clerkenwell. And that's kind of amazing because it's hidden in this little red door that has no signage. So it really feels like you're kind of entering into another world. And when you go through the door there, you go up into an elevator and you come out in this restaurant that has all of these really beautiful old facades uh, that they've left. you know, there's lots of frescoes and there's lots of arches and the food there is exquisite. It's by this chef called Florence Knight and her food is just beautiful to look at and eat. And it's quite hard to get a table there too.
0: Excellent. Well, you know, it wouldn't be worth going to if it wasn't difficult to get in.
3: Exactly. If you can't go to a show then why not try and get a table at one of the very covetable restaurants.
0: And what should uh, you be wearing for Fashion Week? What are you going to be wearing for Fashion Week?
3: I'm going to be wearing mostly black and practical clothing because there is this myth that people dress up for Fashion Week and obviously they do but when you're working and you're you know going to 10-12 shows a day you have to have a wardrobe that works for you. It's very long days as well so getting up at 5am to get out of the door for 6, it's not necessarily my thing to have to overthink that too much. So black goes with black. Uh, I wear a lot of flat loafers, trench coats are always a staple. I think Fashion Week for editors is, is often a time where they dial back to those basics that really work hard for them no matter the season.
0: So if you see somebody wearing all black with a trench coat, they're probably quite important.
3: Probably, yeah. And actually, you'll notice that a lot of the designers, when they come out to take their bow at the end of the runway show, also wear a lot of black because they're thinking about the clothes that they're putting on the, on the catwalk. They don't want to think about the clothes that they're wearing themselves.
0: And what do you expect to see on the runway this year? What's going to hit the headlines?
3: There's been a lot of talk around the stealth wealth, which has been a sort of ripple effect from succession. I think post-pandemic, there was a return to kind of playful fashion. But now I think in, a, in this economic crisis that we're in, and the climate crisis as well. People are looking for pieces that, like I said, work beyond the season. So I think for the shows in September, they'll be showing for spring, summer next year. So there'll probably be lots of shirting. There'll be a return to kind of those crisp, fill-safe fabrics. I imagine there'll be lots of linen because the seasons are getting hotter and cities are getting hotter.
0: Well, I understood some of that. <laughs> so basically dress dress like you're in succession. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and we might also see, you know, the continuation of pink, which has been happening for a few seasons. It's sort of TBC as to whether we'll be pinked out by the time the summer is over. But I can see that track in, and I imagine that that will maybe turn into a softer pink this time round, because I think pink is actually a very flattering colour for a lot of skin tones, and people possibly need that lift in, in among all of the feel-safe navies and beiges and blues and whites that I imagine will be present sometimes you need a little bit of color to you know boost your mood when london is very
0: gray well i for one look forward to the continuation of pink (laughs) thank you grace for your insider picks i feel more fashionable just talking to you
3: my pleasure thank you
0: in his 42 years writing about the las vegas restaurant scene food critic john curtis has seen and tasted it all But in amongst the flashiness and excess that Sin City is notorious for, there exists a small but notable stable of classic culinary spots. These are places where the decor may not quite be on trend, but where the food and the experience never disappoint. Here's John to tell us more about why eating out in Vegas is about far more than buffets and bling.
4: My name is John Curtis, and I'm a food writer, restaurant critic in Las Vegas, Nevada. In the restaurant business, I mean, you see all kinds of crazy things. You know, here we cater to a lot of gamblers. So in the restaurant business, one of the nutsier things I've I've ever seen is comped meals where where people come into these fancy restaurants, some of our best high-end restaurants, and then they will sit down in their buckets of Caviar, I mean, literally buckets like the half a basketball full of caviar and, and salon champagne and first growth Bordeaux show up at the table and they all sit around and they talk at the table for five or ten minutes. Everybody gets up and leaves. When it comes to restaurants that have stood the test of time, that, that still perform and are still iconic tourist attractions in their own right. We have a couple of handfuls of them that amazingly have been around since the 70s. and the, Well, some of them have been around since the 50s. Somehow they have retained a following, some going as far back as the Golden Steer, which started in 1958. And um, it was, I mean, people, you know, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin used to, you know, uh, John Wayne ate there, Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. In these places, uh, I mean, the walls are sort of Dripping with history, at least American uh, moving and pop cultural history. Here, if something's 60 years old, we consider it ancient. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, some places like the Golden Steer, it's like if you took an Old West saloon and crossed it with a bordello and added a flavor and added uh, sort of the Sammy Davis Jr. as a maitre d' in the front. (laughs) You've got the Golden Steer serving gigantic steaks and Caesar salads and cheesecake and very, very much old school, very much like a, a time warp, like you literally feel like when you walk in that you're in Las Vegas in 1965. It's kind of amazing because we're not used to celebrating anything old in Las Vegas. It's all about plowing old, under the old and starting the new. But, you know, you, you want a slice of old Vegas, the Golden Steer is the place to go. Let's talk about the you know, Pierrot's piero's it started in the 1980s early 1980s but it was literally a mob hangout and and so was the golden steer for that matter but when the the mafia ran las vegas and owned you know a dozen hotels here like uh, like the dunes for example and on the sahara and the desert in the old places the sands that have now been plowed under the uh, these guys from you know chicago and new york and kansas city who were financing these hotels and skimming a big rake off the top of all of the um, casino drops. I mean, these were their favorite restaurants. And the, the two, I would say, Piero's is right up there. Guys with nicknames like Big Tuna and, and The Ant, you know, and, you know, Bent Nose Sal. <laughs> I mean, these, these were real guys and they really hung out at Piero's. Well, when I got here in 81, I mean, it was really known as the town that taste forgot. I mean, there was... Very few good restaurants in town and a few like Piero's and Golden Steer still open. But there's a certain template for doing food in the hotels back then. And it was every hotel wanted to capture its customers and keep them in the hotel. And the way they did that is they had a coffee shop and a buffet and an Italian restaurant and a gourmet restaurant. And if you're lucky, they had a steakhouse in there. But it was kind of used all of them being very mediocre uh, examples of the form. But that's what pretty much was the, the format that was employed by every hotel. And nobody looked outside their hotels. They thought, we get the customer here. We capture them. We keep them here to eat, drink, and gamble. Once the celebrity chef boom started in the 90s, it really took off around 1994, 1995. Uh, that changed the, the entire complexion of if food because people started coming to hotels and started jumping from hotel to hotel because there was a Wolfgang Puck restaurant in that hotel or an Emerald Legacy, or a Mario Batali, a restaurant in that hotel. And suddenly hotels became known for their restaurants and people started hopscotching around. And this changed the whole dynamic of how tourists approached Vegas and how uh, Vegas casino hotels catered to their tourists. It was, it was a sea change and it all started right around 1995. Well, when it comes to new restaurants, the ones that I think might have staying power, amazingly, a lot of them are in Chinatown. Our Chinatown, which really should be called Asia Town now, because it's just chock full of not just Chinese restaurants, but Japanese restaurants, and Korean restaurants, and Vietnamese noodle parlors, and and, and uh, Korean and uh, you name it, Thai restaurants. I mean, there are there, uh, there's over 150 of them in our Chinatown now. There are some there in the Japanese. Some elevated sushi bars that I think will stand the test of time. One's called Kabuto. One's called Sanga. Then there's a, a bunch of Japanese izakayas that are wildly popular. Uh, the, the leading one being called Raku. And then there's noodle parlors. We, we suddenly discovered Longbao, you know, the, the Chinese soup dumplings, suddenly came to Vegas about 2005, 2006. And now Las Vegas and Chinatown is crazy with soup dumplings everywhere where they have the staying power is kind of going to be interesting to see. Because if there's one thing that, that gives a restaurant staying power, it generally is a continuity of ownership. If you look at Piero's, for example, or another restaurant, Kung Fu, Thai Chinese, or uh, Golden Steer, they have been in the same family for decades. And that's the thing that keeps a restaurant going. When they start changing ownerships or selling out, they, they never last. But when you see a place where that's been owned for 40 or 50 years or it transfers from the father to the daughter in the case of uh, Golden Steer or the father to the son in the case of the Glusmans at Piero's, these are what give them staying power. To the extent there will be restaurants that have staying power, I think they're going to be out in the suburbs and in Chinatown, not so much in the hotels. The hotels are too busy these days just plowing under the old and bringing in new stuff. I'll tell you the, the restaurant that I think has made the biggest splash right now. It's called Anima by Oscar Amador Ido. It's a Spanish-Italian fusion restaurant out in the suburbs, southwest end of town. that has become wildly popular with just beautiful Spanish food and sort of a mashup of some Italian and, and, and Spanish dishes that it's, it's very popular. And I think that one might be around for a long time. On the strip, my favorite steakhouse is Cut. By Wolfgang Puck. I think it's our best steakhouse, and I think it ranks up with some of the best steakhouses in America. One celebrity chef that really brings the goods here in town is Jose Andres, and he has Bazaar Meat by Jose Andres, which is our best Spanish restaurant. And I never tire of going there. That's in the Sahara Hotel. So some celebrity chefs phone it in, but Jose Andres and his, uh, his crews do not. What makes our Las is food scene so unique? It's something that you would consider a negative, and that's the top-down nature of it. It is not an organic food scene. It does not start with the, the seashore or the farmers or the bakers or the, or the the fishermen, you know, or the or the the chefs who are, who are making pasta at their grandmother's knee in Italy. You know, that where generations of good food and good cooking have come into the fore, like happens in Europe and even uh, South America. Here, it's all been corporate over the last 50 years. And it, we sort of just imported our restaurants and our chefs. Slowly, that importation and sort of the corporate coldness of it has been fading as our restaurant scene in the suburbs and the neighborhoods has gotten better and better. But yeah, what makes us unique is that we just sort of developed our restaurant scene out of whole cloth just 30 years ago, it's only 30 years old. And we did it because we get 42 million people coming here every year. I mean, some people say it's soulless and corporate, and and I've criticized it for being that way too, but at its peak, at the best restaurants in town, both in the hotels and in the suburbs, there's real passion in the cooking and cooking as well as you'll find in any big city. We just don't have the organic history of great food like you see in older communities, even in America.
0: You can read more about John's gastronomic adventures in Las Vegas at eatinglv.com. We conclude with What's On, where we get the film and TV picks of a guest critic and our guest critic this month is Ellen E. Jones. Hello, Ellen.
1: Hello. I'm very pleased to be here.
0: Yeah, we're pleased to have you. Have you got some good stuff for us?
1: Yes, we've got a film called Renfield.
0: Uh, Renfield, Renfield. This must be a Dracula-associated film, is that right? That's
1: right. You must be a goth to have that knowledge to hand. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but no, I do like the gothic over.
1: Yeah, well, Renfield is, is is a kind of canonical character straight from the Bram Stoker novel Dracula. In the novel, he's a sort of inmate of an insane asylum who eats flies as a kind of mm. s- a signal of his insanity and gets kind of possessed by dracula well now is his time to shine because as indicated by the title of the film he's the star of this particular vampire movie played by nicholas Holt. and um he plays renfield as a kind of again a familiar of, of dracula but one who feels himself to be trapped in this kind of codependent relationship with his boss there's a lot of therapy speak chucked around in this film to great Excellent. comic effect and although he is nominally the star of the movie, he cannot help but be overshadowed by Count Dracula because Count Dracula is played by none other than Nick Cage, arguably oh, in the role he was born to play yeah
0: okay and and is it is it horror is it comedy what's the kind of it's genre here?
1: exactly in the midpoint in between it's kind of it's extremely gory horror comedy where like you're supposed to laugh at the you know comic book style violence the script is by a guy called Robert Kirkman who some people might know as the kind of originator of, of the Walking Dead franchise mm. so like that, that kind of zombie area will give you a sense of the sort of levels of violence we're talking about there's a bit where someone gets their arms ripped off and then those arms are used to batter them around the head with which is it's particularly cool, if you don't mind me saying so, and sounding a bit psychotic in doing so.
0: <laughs> no, it sounds good. It's like the kind of horror version of that game that you used to play with your brothers and sisters where you said, stop hitting yourself. It's that kind yeah. of,
1: that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's a there's a also, for the ladies, shall we say, there's a romance storyline <laughs> um, with Awkwafina uh, who... I really love she's she she has a great TV show called uh, Nora from Queens, but mm. she's in everything at the moment. And the chemistry for me isn't quite there with her and, and Nicholas Holt. It's a kind of a bloodless romance, shall we say, but that it doesn't matter because there's so much blood everywhere else. And because the, the chemistry certainly is there between Nicholas Holt and Nick Cage. Yeah. Nick Cage is fantastic in this. It's, if you like Nick Cage doing what Nick Cage does, you will adore this film.
0: I mean, I do, I do love that. That is possibly one of my favorite things on this planet. <laughs> Unleashed, Nick Cage, absolutely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: how does this compare to something like what we do in the Shadows, which has a, a sort of similar the kind of reality of being a vampire's familiar?
1: Yeah. I think if you're a fan of what we do in The Shadows, uh, both the original uh, film with Taika Waititi and the, and the sort of spin-off um, TV series, which I am, I think both of them are brilliant, you'll recognise a lot of the kind of tone of it and the humour of it. What this has that what we do in The Shadows doesn't is ultraviolence and loads of gore and like some really actually impressive prosthetics work around um, Dracula himself, who, who seems to be... Um, his flesh is decaying backwards, um, which right. is, is is both grotesque and fascinating to watch.
0: <laughs> All right, you've absolutely sold me on this. I'm I'm going to watch this for Nicolas Cage alone. I think. Do so. Okay, let's move on. What's your next film pick, please?
1: Okay, my next film pick is one that's quite special to me. Because there's a lot of talk these days about how it's important to watch films in the cinema and and certain films can only properly be appreciated on the big screen. Well, I've always been of the belief that certain films can only properly be appreciated while watching them on an airplane. Because there's something (laughs) about the kind of high altitude and the sort of transitory experience of moving from place to place that, that brings your emotions quite high to the surface. Yeah, yeah. And I think a perfect example of that kind of film is Love Again. Right, Love Again is a very old school, traditional, unabashedly old fashioned rom com, starring Priyanka Chopra Jonas and Outlander's Sam Hoon, um, but really starring Celine Dion. Are you a mm. fan of, of the of Celine Dion? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I, I've, I've been known to do a few Dion numbers at karaoke every now and again, but I, I don't, I don't really know her as a film actor.
1: Well, snap because I I've also been known to do th- bit of think twice at karaoke. Yeah and, yeah, and this film was additionally made for people like us. But um, but I also didn't know how amazing she is as an actor. So she appears in this several times. That the basic plot is that um, the Sam Hughes character, the the sort of the male romantic lead, is um, a journalist, a, a newspaper, he's a music journalist. Of and course
0: he is. That's a job that is still viable to do these days. Exactly. Uh, in, and you in the should movie, see his
1: apartment. <laughs> 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 it's amazing. Also, what's will annoy journalists is that he gets assigned like one story in about two months to write it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And his yeah. story is um is, is writing this profile of Celine Dion and he obviously becomes best mates with her and she becomes kind of like a gives him advice on love. Um. Um, but she just reveals this really like flair for comedy she's really good in it she's she's honestly if you if you if you're finding this hard to believe i urge you to watch it because she is excellent in it the way that her music has this kind of like i say unabashed like emotional right at the surface power ballads that emotions right at the surface the film becomes mm. that too It starts off as about in, in you know fairly predictable rom-com styley it's about two people who have had their hearts broken or are cynical about love but then they come to you know find this soaring romance the one thing that that i find charming about it but might be off-putting to some is that for inexplicable reasons it is set in new york but very clearly filmed in london (laughs) with a lot of british actors doing slightly dodgy american accents so there's there's people like who british people will recognize like russell tovey and um and lydia west from it's a sin and um celia umrey like just doing these weird american accents but uh, that kind of made me love it more it's just a real one off oddball film, but also very familiar and comforting.
0: So, is it more love again or love again? <laughs>
1: Love Actually, Love Again, again. Okay.
0: <laughs> actually. <laughs> it's, it's Actually That's love its again. full
1: title, yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, excellent. I, I understand entirely. It's, it's Love Actually with Celine Dion, is this what you're saying?
1: Exactly, which is what yeah. Love Actually always needed when you come to think about it.
0: Yeah, no, I've, well, actually, yes, that makes <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. All right, great. I, I think you're right. That sounds like the perfect plane film. And let's have your third and final film pick, please, Ellen.
1: So this is the rather hubristically titled Guy Ritchie's The Covenant.
0: Just so you know that it's a Guy Ritchie film. Yeah,
1: yeah, which I'm happy to know because I've got a soft spot for his work and I think this is quite a return to form as well. It's not exactly what you might expect from a Guy Ritchie film, i.e. it's not set in the East End with a load of uh, cheeky chappies and geezers committing a heist but it, it, instead it's a it's a war film it's set in Afghanistan and it stars Jake Gyllenhaal and it tells a story which is quite an important one I think that's been rather overlooked in in the glut of war films from that era and that's about the translators the Afghan the local translators who worked for the British and American forces um and then often were kind of just left behind once the forces moved out, yeah, and kind of abandoned to their fates. And in, in the in the film, Jake Gyllenhaal's character has, has built a particular bond with with his translator, and and he decides that that's not okay, and that he's going to do his best to escape with him.
0: Yes, yeah. Well, I I've seen Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, which I watched because I saw that it was made by Guy Ritchie per the title. <laughs>
1: You didn't miss that then <laughs> <laughs> I didn't
0: know. I was smart enough to see that. Uh, and I obviously watch all Guy Ritchie's movies because uh
1: you're a cheeky chappy and a diamond geezer. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. And I know I feel like I know exactly what I'm getting from a, a Guy Ritchie movie and this did not disappoint. I feel like what I like about Guy Ritchie movies is every time you watch one you can imagine him sat probably in a in a shed somewhere with with some you know, expensive bottle of alcohol next to him, writing it, and being yeah. like, "Oh, oh yeah, that's brilliant, guy. <laughs> oh yeah, that's great guy, great dialogue, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> and then ringing up whoever makes the movies be like, "Yeah, I've done another one, done another
1: <laughs> bish bosh bash done." Yeah,
0: one. <laughs> he does churn them out, especially at the moment.
1: Yeah. Well, when he's got when he's combines his his work with a with a kind of really charismatic actor like I believe Jake Gyllenhaal is, there's there's nothing can stop him. So
0: yeah, uh, three great film picks there. Thank you, Ellen. So let's move on to TV
1: now. So the first one I wanted to talk about is probably not the sort of thing that I'd immediately go to on a plane, but I'm pleased that I watched it anyway, and I'm going to advise people to go for it. It's called The Future with Hannah Fry, and it's a series of documentaries about technology and what it means for us in the future kind of big ideas mm. um explored in a very personable human way because hannah fry is amazing and i just want to launch into a little spiel about why i think hannah fry is amazing if you don't mind yes please do she's a mathematician um and a ucl professor of mathematics i interviewed her quite early on in her career she always seems like impossibly young to to be so accomplished but but she is and What's particularly brilliant about her is that she's one of these people who's very clever, but she has this way of like conveying her enthusiasm and her curiosity for the subject to you. And just and and it makes you feel, feel enthusiastic and curious about whatever she's talking about. And this series has some really fascinating subjects in there's an episode on the 150 year life, like the kind of potential for longevity in in human life with medical mm. developments. There's one on a, a new wave of AI that can read emotions better than humans can because we think we're quite good at reading emotions, but it turns out that actually we're not very good and and that's weirdly counterintuitively something that, that uh, the robots are better at. Wow. There's one on nuclear fusion as a potential clean energy source. There's a really visually attractive episode on rewilding where Hannah Fried goes to Fukushima where um the uh, nuclear disaster happened about a decade ago now, and um, talks to the people there and and sees how kind of nature has has taken taken it back, and talks about whether this is what's going to happen, you know, over the planet as a whole eventually. Mm. Basically, all science docs should be presented by Hannah Fry. You will emerge from this feeling cleverer and feeling energised, and it feels like a like a spritz of ice cold water to the brain. Oof. It's a great refreshing refreshing series.
0: That sounds wonderful. Is it more optimistic or scary? How, how did you emerge from this? Some
1: of the topics that she talks about are very scary. <laughs> I mean, I'm quite terrified of the, the, the idea of the weaponization of data, for instance, that, that all of us have been kind of giving away all this information about ourselves online for years now and that this is going to come back to bite us in the arse. But again, because Hannah Fry, the way she is, she's the perfect kind of guide to take you through these quite scary topics because she herself is such a indefatigably optimistic person. Excellent. Okay, let's move on. There's a series called Intelligence, which comes from the brilliant brain of, of the comedian Nick Mohammed. He is probably best known for the character he plays, Nathan Shelley, in the Apple Plus TV series, Ted Lasso. But he's been a great comedian for years now. And he, in um, Intelligence, he teams up with David Schwimmer, a.k.a. Ross from Friends, yeah, who, yeah as any intelligent person knows was the funniest one from friends <laughs> do you agree I,
0: well i I see myself as a little bit of a ross. There you go. But I always thought he was the uh, worst
1: character.
0: <laughs> I don't know what that says about me.
1: That's what people think initially. And then as they emotionally mature, they come to realise that he's not the worst character. He's actually the best character. So just right. watch that box set a few more times and um, <laughs> you'll come to the realisation. Anyway, in um, Intelligence, he's paired with Nick Mohammed. He's like this kind of extremely overconfident american intelligence specialist and the word intelligence is always in inverted commas whenever i mention it in the context of this show because they're all very inept in a comedic fashion um and um, nick mohammed's the kind of office dog's body and they sort of become a partnership well this is a special from that series so all the ca- characters are established and it's like an hour-long one where they they have to um go undercover to pose as climate scientists in a climate summit in order to save GCHQ and and secondarily the planet itself. Um, And they're just a great twosome. You know, everyone's extremely silly and narcissistic and unprincipled and underqualified, which is to say it's an extremely accurate satire of British politics and the workings of British government. Mm. And um, yeah, I think they're great. They're a great twosome. So yeah, people will enjoy that one.
0: I mean, I, I want to see them both do well because, yeah, Nick Mohammed has had this career on the kind of British comedy underground and then this breakout role. And David, you know, I always like to see a friend do well, you know,
1: <laughs> right.
0: I always like it when the friends pop up. I'm like, oh, Lisa Kudrow, good for you. Yeah. you know? yeah,
1: there's a warmth for them, isn't
0: there? All right. Excellent. I'll watch that. And finally, what's your last TV
1: pick? Well, anyone that knows me knows that I have a true crime obsession. I'm almost constantly listening to true crime podcasts. Um, Mm. But but I'm also, like many people, a bit disturbed by the kind of glut of of true crime dramas because a lot of them just aren't very good. So when there's a good one, my radar's out for it. And this is a good one. It's called Steel Town Murders. It's immediately engrossing. It's about a real case from the 1970s in the area around Swansea. And it's got this split timeline Philip Glenister, who's in a lot of these things, has to be said, but he plays plays the, the detective, the investigating detective, Paul Bethel. And it follows the process of this investigation, which, which became a cold case investigation, was picked up kind of 30, 40 years on. And as in a lot of these cases, with the development of DNA technology, there was new hope of solving what had long been a cold case. But like the best true crime dramas, this is a portrait of a particular place and time. Um, in this case, that area around Swansea, Neath and Port Talbot that was you know, the, the centre of the copper smelting industry for a time but was already very much in decline by the 1970s. Mm. And you get a sense of the people there. There's, there's something like narratively very satisfying, I have to say, about a cold case like this one because it's a mystery that gets resolved. So I'll, I'll say that going in, that you're going to find out who did it. You're not going to be left unsatisfied. But what I admire about this series is that it never loses sight of the human beings and their suffering and the pain and the real loss that is at the centre of this case. It doesn't treat it like a cold logic puzzle. It's It really centres that through the performances and the writing and the sense of the place. So um, it's a very sensitive depiction of, of, of a community in pain.
0: And is it very 70s?
1: (laughs) If you mean, are there handlebar moustaches and sideburns, then yes, there are handlebar moustaches and sideburns and some excellent leather jackets as well.
0: Yeah, another great reason to watch it then. (laughs) Ellen, thank you for your picks. They all sound excellent. Uh, Which friend are you?
1: Well, as I don my leather trousers (laughs) (laughs) um, and go through my third divorce, clearly... I am Ross. <laughs>
0: We're both Rosses. Or maybe maybe res. Maybe that's, the, <laughs> yeah. maybe that's the plural. Ellen, thank you very much for your film and TV picks.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And that's all for this month. We hope you've enjoyed our journey through cultures high, low and everything in between. We're off for a Guy Ritchie marathon to reassess the works of this underrated auteur, The Viva Magazine podcast is made by Ink Studio for Virgin Atlantic and is produced by David Clack at Perfect Loop Productions. Thanks for joining us. See you next month.